Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Today on the podcast, I welcome Dr. Robin Burzin. Robin attended medical school at Columbia University and trained in internal medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. She is the founder and CEO of Parsley Health, America's leading holistic medical practice designed to help women and families overcome chronic conditions. Parsley directly addresses the rising tide of chronic disease through personalized holistic medicine that puts food, lifestyle, and proactive diagnostic testing on the prescription pad next to medications. Robin is also the author of the new book, State Change, which dives deeply into the root causes of emotional stress, anxiety, and exhaustion. The book also chronicles Robin's own health journey, which inspired her to quit her law career and go to medical school. On the show, Robin and I discuss the crosstalk between the mind and the body. We explore how mood often follows action. She outlines the five primary contributors to emotional stress. We talk about the key diagnostic tests everyone should get in evaluating their holistic health. We probe the wide-ranging benefits of sleep, exercise, and limiting our screen time. And of course, we address diet specifically related to blood sugar. Over the course of our conversation, Robin really lays out the essential ingredients to elicit a state change, a resetting of your baseline wellness. Robin is a fount of knowledge, and I guarantee you will get clear and actionable information from this conversation that you can apply to your own health. So without further delay, I present to you, Dr. Robin Burzin. Hey, Dr. Robin Burzin, great to be with you. Great to see you. Yeah, we have known each other for a really long time. 
Um, but I feel like I know a completely new you <laughs> after reading your book, um, State Change. Um, I know you obviously as a doctor, and I know you first as a devoted coolie. Um, a coolie, for those not familiar, is a regular at my wife Skylar's yoga studio, which is called Kula. Um, but I didn't know that you, let's see, worked as a paralegal processing securities <laughs> fraud for the U.S. attorney. I didn't know that you went to Nepal for a women's health group. I didn't know that you did a 10-day Vipassana in Bangkok. Um, and uh, if people think that those are disparate activities, well, you have to read the book <laughs> to understand the connection. But these adventures all play uh, some role in your own personal state change. Uh, and I want to get into some of your um, personal inflection points because I think they're central to the book and your story. But maybe first you can more generally define the concept of state change. You really did your homework. You really uh, got in there on the book. So yes, uh, we go. We do go way back. You first met me when I was like a kid, as you said, hanging around Skylar's yoga studio. So before I even went to medical school, so a lot has changed. But as I, I share in the book and as I credit uh, Kula and Skylar in the book, the my own personal state change is really what led me to the concept, which was about finding a higher level of energy and focus and clarity and calm and really joy on a daily basis. And that wasn't a concept I grew up with. Health and wellness weren't concepts I grew up with. I grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, great upbringing, but just for whatever reason in that culture, in that time, 80s, 90s, that just wasn't the thing. And so as I found myself after college, kind of lost working as a paralegal at the U.S. Attorney's Office feeling deeply that someone should do that job. It just should not be me. <laughs> uh, I really found through yoga kind of my first state change and that first sort of recentering my body. And actually the first time I really broke through what I call the concrete wall between our heads and our bodies that a lot of people live with hmm. and even paid attention to my body at all. And so it was through that experience that I ultimately went to medical school. So big thank you to yoga. Yeah, well, I uh, had the office on the second floor of that building on Warren Street, <laughs> and I know the rickety lime green stairwell is imprinted imprinted forever in my memory. Um, but you know, I, you talk a lot about that. Um, maybe I'd call it that coffee to wine cycle um, with a few energy bars in between. And I think this is a, a very common urban existence and certainly one that I can directly relate to for years. I ran a record company in New York City. I was out late all the time. And then even at Wanderlust, um, you know, it was a wellness company, but I'm not sure I was always well. Um, and it certainly keeps us productive, quote unquote, that lifestyle. And as you say, fitting into a size small, but I, I wasn't a, a size small. <laughs> um, but eventually it does take its toll. And, you know, I, I wonder if you can get into that because we hear a lot about the mind-body connection, essentially how the impact of stress on metabolism or the gut. But I think what's really interesting about this book and about your message is that you highlight something that we don't hear as much about, which is the 
body-mind connection, essentially how the degradation of our physiology has these knock-on impacts on our psychology. And I wonder if you can untangle that a little. Yes. It's something that I was living and I didn't realize I was living. And then even though I didn't go to med school to do psych, I trained in internal medicine. It's something that I saw in my training every single day, the ways in which you know, again, I grew up in the, I'm like an early eighties baby. And so growing up in the, you know, being the edge of the millennial generation and in eighties and nineties, I think like a lot of us got schooled in that nineties perspective of what health was, which was like calorie counting and, mm -hmm. you know, back to that rinse and repeat cycle of wine and coffee and, and bars. And, you know, my definition of, of health, as you alluded to, it was like, oh, if I fit into my genes, like I'm healthy. It had nothing to do with how I felt. And I had that first experience of feeling better through the body. So what I learned then throughout my training is that I don't know that you can always think your way out of how you feel mentally and emotionally. And we live now in a time where the forces around us are pushing our bodies into a state of ill health and dis-ease, right? Disease, dis-ease. And creating forces on our metabolisms, on our gut, on our ability to manage blood sugar, um, through our diet, on the nutrient base in our bodies that are making us feel really sick. And that sick isn't like, okay, in 20, 30 years, I'm going to have heart disease bad, which is something that's really hard for people to relate to. It's that and it's how we feel right now. Hmm. And so I write in the book about something I call core actions because what I saw in my medical training is that the foods we eat, how we move all day, whether we sit 11 hours a day looking at a screen or not, these things aren't like habits. Like habits is biting your nails. Habits is not what you eat or how you move all day. These things are core actions. They're deeply defining. Mm -hmm. And again, not just your health 20, 30 years from now, but to how you feel right now. And I, to your point, I think we've really missed the message in a lot of cases that What's happening in your body is impacting how you feel in your mind and your emotions. And we have a lot of control over that. And it's very concrete and straightforward as opposed to something, again, that can feel very esoteric, thought-based and overwhelming. Yeah. Like in AA, I think they say your best thinking has gotten you here, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, yes. But, but I think it's, it's a really interesting idea that mood follows action or, or thoughts follow behavior. And I've been seeing this concept kind of surface in a whole variety of different ways. Um, Andrew Huberman talks about it. Uh, Paul Hawken, who wrote a book about regeneration, talks about it in terms of our actions vis-a-vis -vis the environment. It's actually when you start actually working in concert or in harmony with nature, then your thoughts about environmentalism actually change. It's it's really interesting um, concept that mind can follow body because it's not instinctive almost. Um, and I think this is a, maybe an opportune moment for you to describe parsley health because I think a lot of information that we're going to talk about could benefit from that substrate uh, because we're going to get into a lot of physiological mechanism. And I think it would be helpful to have a, just a foundational knowledge around parsley and your approach to health. 
So I started Parsley kind of a reaction again to my medical training. So I, I trained at Columbia Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. They're awesome, amazing places. I have an incredible foundation in, in you know, how we think about conventional medicine today. And I saw how valuable that medicine was in that training. But I also saw, especially in my primary care kind of outpatient clinic time, you know, I'd have 15 minute visits and I'd rush through them. And I'd spend two of those minutes frantically printing out prescriptions. And in those days we printed them out and they were four to a page. And I would be signing like four prescriptions and I'd be signing three or four pages and I'd hand someone this stack of prescriptions, all for things for high blood sugar, high cholesterol, body pain, migraines, autoimmune disease, depression, anxiety, hormone issues, PCOS, infertility, menopause, uh, thyroid issues, all the stuff that most people were living with. And I saw a couple things. I saw that one, I knew the data said that people would only take about 50% of these medications. So half medication prescriptions are written are never filled. I saw that uh, people would spend this like few minutes with me, get a bunch of refills or referrals to specialists, and they would go see a specialist and that would take a couple months and then they'd get a procedure and another drug. And then a couple months later, they'd come all back to me. And that that was kind of this revolving door that wasn't getting anyone better. And then I also saw that these diseases I all just described, you know, a lot of people with these conditions, they have, they don't think of themselves as sick, but these are just like the conditions we're living with. And they're all interconnected and they're all pushing and pulling on each other. And they're highly uh, modifiable or even reversible through what you're eating and how you live your life. And yet those things I wasn't being trained to put on my prescription pad. And so those kind of aha, that like light bulb moment in that 15 minute visit of all of those things led me to pursue training in something called functional medicine, which for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's about really using conventional medicine, like using all the same tools that we have in conventional medicine, but thinking about them a different way and asking the question why. Let's look at the root cause, your migraine and my migraine, Yours might be magnesium deficiency. Mine might be stress. Somebody else's might be hormones. Let's ask why and treat that rather than just giving you a painkiller for your migraine because the painkiller might help right now, but it's not going to get the migraines to go away. And then functional medicine was also about making that prescription pad that my like frantic signing, tiny little weenie prescription pad that everyone remembers right now. It's all online, but very small. It's about making that bigger. I'm saying, yes, we need medications and we need procedures and we need cool testing, but we also need to take food as medicine seriously because who doesn't like medicine? It is medicine. And if you eat the standard American diet, you will get the standard American diseases. And so that was really cool. I learned about functional medicine. I had a pretty good training and foundation in conventional medicine at the highest level. And I said, all right, how do we bring these things together in a way that makes them more accessible? more uh, modern, more fun, like a better experience because nobody likes going to the doctor. So how can we make that really pleasant and lovely and a lot of, you know, online care mm -hmm. and all of that came together as Parsley Health. So I started Parsley as like a bootstrapped experiment in 2016, 2015, 2016, but it was like me being the doctor and the marketer and the <laughs> legal <laughs> ops, <laughs> social media yeah. manager, you name it. Um, and then, you know, in 2017, really 2018, we raised our first round of outside capital. And now we're a relatively large company. We're out or nationwide, available online nationwide. We also have clinics in New York and LA. And we're offering this medicine through an annual membership. And so that's what we do.
it's such an important service and so timely. And and you address um, primary care in the book in a really interesting way. And uh, it, it, and I didn't really understand the pressures that have led to uh, generally how primary care functions, which is what you described is this kind of frantic writing of prescriptions um, because you don't have much time. So you have to condense these visits into 10, 15 minutes. And a lot of that is because of the pressures within um, the overall systems and structures of, of insurance and whatnot. And, um, and primary care is really in many ways sort of the unsung hero uh, of medicine because and it gets demeaned kind of in medical schools a lot because it's not so sexy. It doesn't get a lot of play in the TV dramas. And it certainly doesn't get, as you point out, the big insurance coverages of of heart bypass surgery, for example. Um, so there's all this pressure to kind of turn, you know, cl- or clients, you know, patients in and out. But primary care is really the place where you can prevent disease and not just treat it. Um, and where you can help people thrive and not just survive. So it's it's just uh, so important, sort of the, the revolutionary approach that I think you're taking to, to primary care at Parsley. So it's, it's just a Thank great you. service. I see Parsley is what primary care should be, but isn't because of the system. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. it's exactly as you said, we'd rather spend hundreds of thousands of dollars ripping a vein out of your leg and tying it around your heart when your heart is clogged then spend more than 15 minutes with you to try to not just prevent disease, but treat disease in a way that will actually reverse it, which is possible for many of these chronic conditions. I mean, the conditions I listed, you know, they're interrelated, they're multifactorial. Your, your heart and your brain and your lungs and your gut aren't like in separate, you know, jars sitting next to each other, Mm -hmm. disconnected, right? That's not how the body works. The body's an ecosystem and yet our medical system didn't didn't evolve to treat it like that. And it's no shade on the doctors. Like our doctor medical community are filled with highly trained, highly indebted for medical school caring people who are really smart, who hate this system because running through a million patients a day and just sending them prescriptions is no fun and isn't really what you went to school for. Uh, and yet the system and those pressures of the system have created it exactly as you said. And so... Um, I felt we had an opportunity in the early days to go direct to consumer and offer a service that was much higher touch, longer visits, all the visits in the year included for one flat fee, kind of take away all the friction of the way our system is designed in the model and make it so you could see someone in person or via telehealth. Cause like, if you can call your mom via video, why are you not talking to your doctor? Like, why are we driving hours to go see a doctor? That's like largely dumb. And so kind of just built all that out sort of as my dream scenario for what this new system would look like. And, you know, we sort of digress into Parsley a bit, but the thing that I'm maybe one of the things I'm the most proud of is that we have tens of thousands of patients who've been Parsley members over the past few years and are Parsley members today. And we have incredible outcomes data showing that this approach to care Uh, this approach to medicine lowers total total cost of care, gets people off of drugs, reduces the need for all these specialists. And it's now proven out in insurance data. And we just launched our first in-network relationship um, in New York with Aetna like a week or two ago as of this recording. And so I always knew that eventually we'd like plug into the mothership (laughs) 
but we would do it on our terms and in the right way and in a way that didn't stop allowing us to deliver the same level of care. And we've done that. And so um, we're now expanding that, but like we're officially working with insurance as of two weeks ago. So it happened. Oh, Here we well, are. If you, if you can get to that place where you can write a script for uh, a plant-based, fiber-rich diet instead of a statin, <laughs> then you can really raise the trophy. Um, but, I mean, I'm um, there. I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things I love about your book is that you know you you bring a lot back to this notion of energy and. Um, you know, you talk about this uh, sort of siloed approach to to medicine where there's specialists and, you know, we're, we're dealing with these issues as if they're a cubbyhole. But if you look at like metabolism or digestion or the circulatory system or the respiratory system, they're actually all involved in actually creating energy <laughs> in our mitochondria, ATP, et cetera through a whole variety of means, and we don't necessarily have to digress into, you know, all of those mechanisms. Um, But that's essentially what we need to do as a human organism to function. We need to optimize our ability to produce energy, and we need oxygen, and we need nutrients, and we need our heart to be pumping that oxygen around properly. We need to be digesting and absorbing nutrients properly, et cetera. Um, and our hormones obviously uh, need to be ushering that nutrients to the proper places, et cetera. So all of these systems are uh, completely intertwined. Um, but when there's a breakdown in the system, we stop producing energy optimally. And this can really impact mood and um, and by extension, sort of emotional stability and stress. So y- you have two diagnoses that I thought were kind of funny. Um, they're not funny at all in reality, but the way you uh, the, elucidated them in the book, I thought was clever, which are F41.9 <laughs> and R53.83. What are these uh, diagnoses these, that seem so utterly prevalent? Yeah. So these are the ICD-10 codes. So for those of you who don't live in the medical world all day, ICD-10 book, it's like, think of it as like a giant book, but it's every single diagnosis in the United States has a number associated with it. And those two are anxiety and depression. Hmm. And I didn't start Parsley Health as a mental health service, right? Like we started it to address certainly anxiety and depression, but also the heart health issues and the gut issues and the autoimmune and the, you know, fertility. We do a ton of fertility, preconception, maternity, postpartum work, menopause, all those things, all the physical conditions. Right. But what was really interesting to me and what part of why I started, you know, my, my first ever book was a mental health book was that we saw that these diagnosis codes were the most frequent codes. And this is before, this is before COVID. And then as COVID began, I saw that that was only going to get worse. And what I'd also seen in our practice treating so many patients was that when we would treat the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth that somebody had because they'd eaten too much sugar, taken too much antibiotics, that was, yes, causing their bloating and, you know, diarrhea and gas and all the reflux, all the negative um, GI symptoms. When we treated that, it also relieved their brain fog. 
and it also relieved their chronic fatigue. Or when we did a genetic test for an MTHFR variant and gave somebody a methylated B vitamin instead of a regular B12 and folate, and their chronic fatigue drastically improved, their mood drastically improved, it was like this huge unlock, right? Or when we help somebody who didn't realize they had high blood sugar, but had high fasting glucose, high fasting insulin, the sort of scourge of, you know, modern life today, which is more than 50% of Americans. Um, when we did that, it would help improve their anxiety. Or when we got them on a gluten-free diet, if they were sensitive to gluten, the brain fog and the irritability would go away. And so we had this track record of treating the mind through the body, through these really concrete and simple actions. And so and I find it, I found it interesting that we live in this era where like brain fog and depression and anxiety are just so rampant and everybody's writing books about them and, you know, it's impacting the workforce and all of this stuff. And it's like, if you sit all day staring at screens and eat sugar, you are going to feel fogged, depressed and anxious, and you're not going to sleep well. So you'll have chronic fatigue. And there's just kind of this denial in general about the role of our bodies play and our mental health. And I'd seen so many people unlock their way to greater clarity, joy, focus, pur- purpose, uh, that even though, again, I never set out really to create a service that was focused on mental health, it, it's become so much a part of what we do because we don't separate the mind and the body arbitrarily. We don't put them in separate jars that, you know, you know, 20% of our members come to us for a mental health issue now. Um, and, but that was really organically derived out of us treating physical issues and then impacting these mental health issues so profoundly. Yeah. Well, let's get into some more specific mechanism around that. Um, you know, you, in the book, you list, I think it's five primary contributors to emotional stress. Um, so I'd like to unpack each contributor and untangle how each of them sponsors anxiety and exhaustion, and then how we can leverage them to induce state change. So you list diet, movement, or lack of movement, uh, technology, sleep, and misuse um, or abuse of drugs and alcohol. And we can get into that distinction. But maybe let's just start with diet because that's the elephant in the room for me anyways. Um, what, how is our standard American diet connected to emotional stress? A few ways. So first of all, our diet is like 90 something percent ultra refined. And most people are living on processed, packaged, refined flours and refined sugars that are glued together with omega-6 vegetable oils. That's kind of what people eat. And (laughs) even those of us in the health and wellness industry, I mean, I was at the airport last week and I saw a green juice and I always love to see, I always love to like look at the green juice labels. This is at like a Starbucks or something and a standard airport coffee place. And the green juice had 58 grams of sugar in one little bottle. And that's almost three times what we should have in a day. And it's being sold to us as a health food product. And so People don't have no idea just how much refined carbs, cookies, cakes, breads, pastas, crackers, anything that comes in a bag or, you know, that you have to pop open (laughs) that sits on a shelf. And simply by eating those foods, a couple things happen. Number one, 
we create metabolic disarray and eating one of those foods or one of those sugar bombs is like throwing a grenade in your stomach. Sugar goes up, insulin goes up, um, insulin goes up and we get a whole cascade of hormonal dysfunction. Testosterone goes up, then testosterone is converted into estrogen. So you get all the PCOS and the infertility and the endometriosis and all of the issues that female health issues men too. Um, that cycle disrupts the immune system and makes it harder for the body to heal and fight off infections, which we saw in COVID. Um, one of the biggest risk factors for dying of COVID was by diabetes. Um, not a judgment, just a fact. And that high blood sugar state when prolonged, meaning it's every day, not just a once in a while, leads to chronic inflammation in the body and that inflammation shows up in the brain and that um, in brain inflammation is uh, correlated with anxiety and depression in the literature. So that's one is the sugar factor. Another one is eating all those foods shift who lives and who dies in your gut. So we can take all the fancy probiotics we want, but who lives and who dies in your gut is mainly defined by what you put in your mouth every day. So your you know, plant-based high fiber diet is going to grow one set of bugs and your highly refined sugar alcohol diet is going to build another cohort. And the cohort that eating a lot of sugar builds is one that is not so good at maintaining our gut lining integrity. And it's not so good at maintaining a healthy balance of neurotransmitters like GABA and serotonin. People don't realize that 95% 5, of the serotonin in your body is in your gut, not your brain. And that, that bacteria that live all over us, but especially in the gut, have a really big role in translating what you eat into chemicals that impact how you feel mentally and emotionally. And so that's the second way. And then the third way is back to that, you know, omega-6 oil glue. So people are like, omega-6, omega-3, what does that mean? Well, omega-6 fats, we need some of them. We should be eating about a four to one ratio of omega-6 to omega-3. But in this country, on average, we get a 26 to one. And where's that coming from? So that's all your vegetable oils, your canola oils, your rapeseed, grapeseed oils. These are the fat, the sort of processed food fats or the fats at the, you know, to go, you know, bar at the deli or the bodega or wherever you're buying from, even the health food, quote unquote, grocery store. And these fats interrupt our brain's ability to use the serotonin we have and also lead to further neurological inflammation. Meanwhile, you need those omega-3s because your brain is built of about 70% fat. So you need those healthy fats to build a healthy brain. So that's a lot of science, but I walk through all the science in the book because I've found with patients over the years that when you teach people the why and you help people understand the science of what's happening, especially when it comes to food, there's a lot of shoulds in food, especially for women, and a lot of good foods, bad foods, judgments on foods, shame around food, emotional relationships to food, um, sense of punishment, all these things. But when you put that aside for a second and you just understand the science of food and how it interacts with your body, people get really psyched. Like they get interested and, and anyone can understand this basic stuff. So I cover it really simply in the book. And when you understand that science of what the sugar is doing in your body, how it's impacting your microbes, how the fats are interacting with your brain, you can kind of get out of that should mode and into that, oh, I want to eat an unprocessed, highly plant-based whole foods diet because I know what that other stuff does to me. I understand it now. I can see it in my mind's eye. And that's really powerful. 
Yeah, it's so funny that you bring that idea because on a page 123, I have underlined that very concept. Um, and I won't read it back, though I had planned to read it back just because you, you already said it. But when there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of slogans, there's a lot of aphorisms and adages, there's a lot of Instagram memes about what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat. But when people start to actually understand mechanism, behavior changes. Because when you know what is happening in your gut or with your metabolism, it's hard to deny <laughs> um, um, certain kinds of uh, the impacts of certain kinds of behaviors. So, I mean, this has been true for me. Um, the more I learn about my own body and my own physiology, the easier it is for me to adopt different behaviors um, and uh, and optimize my health. Um, so I have a, a couple questions and, and just a few um, ideas related to, to diet and blood sugar. Uh, but first I'll start in the microbiome because, or in the gut, because uh, I don't think a lot of people know that how much serotonin is produced in the gut. And, um, and serotonin is also a precursor to the production of melatonin, um, which we'll get into um, around sleep. And melatonin is also a very, very powerful antioxidant. So, so much happening in the gut. And as you say, when we um, consume too much refined sugar and grains and processed foods, what we're really doing is pushing ourselves into dysbiosis and eventually um, intestinal permeability, which is leading to chronic inflammation, et cetera. Um, I have another kind of question for you more specifically about hyperglycemia, essentially the prevalence of glucose, high levels of glucose in the blood. So obviously we need some glucose uh, to make adenosine triphosphate in our cells. Uh, insulin obviously picks up glucose in the bloodstream and tries to usher it into the cells. But when we have too much because we are either scarfing down too many Twizzlers or sodas, or we become insulin resistant for a whole variety of reasons, uh, and, and there's too much glucose in our blood, what happens when there's too much glucose in our blood? Oof, so many things happen. <laughs> <laughs> on the, you know, on the on the basic, most basic sort of version of that, right? It's that when you your body has like a really narrow range of what is too cold or too hot in terms of the amount of sugar in your blood. Too little, you're going to get shaky and pass out, right? The body doesn't want that. Too high, uh, basically the same thing is going to happen. And so your body has to keep you in a really narrow range in order to function. And so when you eat a load of sugar, your body pumps out another hormone or a hormone called insulin, whose sole job in life is to take the sugar that's floating around in your blood and if, if it stays there is really toxic and damaging to you and to put it into cells where it gets stored largely as fat or sometimes for like very temporary immediate use. Um, the liver stores a bunch of sugar for kind of immediate get up and go. And that when your body has to day in and day out fend off this like onslaught of sugar and then your insulin goes way up because it's like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm going to die. I got to get the sugar out of my bloodstream. I got to hide it and put it in a safe place in my cells. 
over time, your pancreas, which is the organ in your body that makes the insulin, literally burns out and can't make the insulin anymore. And what also happens is that those cells whose job it is to like take in the extra glucose and get it out of the blood, those cells get um, full effectively um, and they get kind of insensitive, which means like if your mom is yelling at you to clean your room over and over again, eventually you tune her out the cells kind of tune out the insulin and are like, I'm going to done putting more sugar in here. And then that leads to high blood sugar that has nowhere to go. And then we cover, we basically frost all of our insides like frosted flakes with sugar. So people get that test called hemoglobin A1C and they're like, what's that? It's this funny group of letters and numbers. I don't know what that means. It says I'm, you know, have metabolic syndrome, but I don't have diabetes yet. What that test is, is a measure of the level of frosting on your blood, red blood cells. And when your red blood cells are frosted, you gum up and clog up lots of little blood vessels. And that's how people go blind or lose feeling in their feet or end up long-term with amputations. You can't use oxygen as well. And back to the point about energy without kind of going like super deep into mm -hmm. Warburg and <laughs> that whole yeah. world, which I'm a big nerd about. The reality is, is that your cells when inundated with sugar and the subsequent um, oxidative stress that the sugar creates, your cells have a really hard time making as much energy, ATP. And your mitochondria don't, don't work as well. Like nothing works as well, basically. It's like, here I am walking through my day, trying to like, you know, take care of my kids and go to work and send a zillion emails as is like my life, right? And slacks and so forth. And imagine I'm doing that, but I'm carrying like a hundred pound backpack on and I have to do all the same thing. Am I going to do it as fast? Am I going to do it as well? Am I going to feel good? Am I going to get a giant headache? Yeah. So um, that's what sugar does. And so I think we've sort of been misguided when it comes to blood sugar and there's a lot of attention to it now in terms of like, okay, use a continuous glucose monitor to kind of monitor your ranges. And that's, that's great. That's an awesome kind of cue but I don't think that we've really bothered to educate anyone on like what's happening in your body when all this sugar is around. And I find that when you do, people think like, ick, yeah. I don't want that. And no wonder I feel like crap and I have brain fog all the time because my lunch consists of coffee and a sandwich and a bar and a whole bunch of, of processed stuff that is making my cells it's like putting an 80 pound, hundred pound weight on each cell while it's trying to make energy for me. Yeah. And I mean, this process of glycation of, uh, essentially glycoprotein formation. And I, I think what a lot of people call advanced glycation end products, these, uh, where there's too much glucose sitting around in the blood and it'll fuse with like a protein, like hemoglo hemoglobin, which will then create a tremendous amount of inflammation in your vascular system. And, you know, we look at some of the downstream impacts of that, you know, heart disease and stroke, which are, I think the number one and maybe number four or five killers in the United States, you know, for a long time, we've, you know, blamed cholesterol for that. But when we actually look upstream, um, there's some other contributors uh, to inflammation in our vascular system. So it's just, uh, yeah, the, it, it's, it's so important, the work that you're doing about educating people ab around this. And yeah, I wear a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor, 
because I'm a little bit farther down the rabbit hole than than the average Joe. Um, but it's been really eye opening for me because you know instead of getting a snapshot uh, with a hemoglobin A one C, even though that's a kind of average over maybe a few months, but just to get that once a year at the doctor, you know, I'll probably just disregard it. But, you know, day to day, I've been really interested at least in, hey, what am I eating that's spiking me? What other behaviors am I engaging in that's spiking my blood sugar? And how can I empower myself and have the agency to, you know, change my habits or not habits in your, <laughs> as you say, my systems? Um, because we just, we always fall to our systems at the end of the day. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about movement a little bit. You have a great quote in the book. I think it's, your issues are in your tissues. <laughs> um, and uh, maybe you can just address the importance of movement and I suppose the, uh, the importance around the lack of movement as it contributes to emotional stress. So your issues are in your tissues, but there's actually science behind that little <laughs> quip, which, you know, could just be cute for Instagram, but like can get dismissed, I think, too easily. And, you know, The Body Keeps the Score is the original book on this. And so I'll credit that. But it was also really fun in writing this book to kind of dive into the research of exercise and mental health, because a lot of studies have shown that exercise regularly will improve anxiety and depression in 95% of patients where drugs, psych drugs, while valuable tools, certainly only work for around 50%. And so it was awesome to kind of dive into the fact that as a psych and a medical community, we should be prescribing exercise first for anxiety, depression, brain fog, insomnia, and that the research bench there is so deep and so proven and so long that it is really, I think, malpractice not to do that. And so that was really cool to, to kind of reaffirm because I kind of, you know, you know these things when you study, go to medical school, but then to really dive into it was awesome. And then I think for all of us to understand, well, why is that, right? Because again, I always come back to the biology and the physiology and the why. Your body was designed to process emotion through movement. And that's how we process and clear our emotions. And so we, on average, sit 11 hours a day and we're having emotions hundreds, if not thousands of times a day. And so what happens when you have an emotion? Because emotion doesn't just a thought and it doesn't just live in your head. I might have a thought that, you know, oh, I'm really pissed at this person or, oh my gosh, like here I am on the commune podcast and I'm kind of nervous. Like, am I going to do a good job on this, you know, super high profile podcast? And I might not even like see that thought as if I'm, it's not like I'm reading it on a TV screen, but I might have that thought so fast. It's like comes and goes in an instant. I don't even register it, but I have an emotional reaction to that thought, which is anger or fear or anxiety. And then when I have that emotional reaction to that thought, I kick off a wave of neurotransmitter and hormone or neurotransmitters and hormones throughout my body and that hit every single cell in my body. And that wave can take upwards of 48 hours to completely go away. And so imagine that wave is happening hundreds of thousands, or if not thousands of times a day, if you're running from a lion, which is your email, or you have a lot of stuff going on. 
And now you're impacting your blood sugar. You're raising your cortisol levels. You're increasing high blood pressure, high blood sugar. You're increasing your resting heart rate. Um, You're disrupting your sleep. You're shutting down your digestion. And this wave impacts even your cellular integrity and your cells ability and your immune system's ability to like fight off disease. So when we say like, oh, the body keeps a score, emotions live in our tissues, that is the mechanism by which our emotions impact our tissues. And so when we move our bodies, when we dance or when we run or when we sweat or when we do yoga or someone gave me um, crap for not talking about, I'm like not a Pilates fan, but like I didn't talk about it in the book. And so for all of you Pilates people out there, it's like, I'm not, there's no hatred for Pilates. It's just like not my thing. Um, But (laughs) for those of you who are like, I hate yoga, I'm like, fine, I get it. It's cool. Um, But it's not, you know, in that sense necessarily about a particular type of yoga. It's about moving this wave of neurotransmitters and hormones through our body and processing them um, so that they don't essentially sit around and create damage. And so that was really cool to research and understand And it comes back to just like with food, we've sort of thought of exercise as a punishment or a should, or it's about looking fit and being hot. And we've lost sort of that knowledge that exercise is there to make us feel good. Not again, 20 years from now, but right now, regardless of your weight, regardless of how you look. And I think that's really important for people because it's this tool that's largely free that we have right at our fingertips to massively transform our mental health every single day. Yeah, and you recommend two primary kinds of movement, right? A, a more aerobic style movement, and then I think what you call maybe controlled movement. Can you break that apart? Yeah. So I talk about a couple of types of movement because I'm a really big fan of variety. And what I usually get when I see a patient is somebody who's doing one of three. They're maybe like just doing yoga, tai chi, the stuff that um, is really great for stimulating the parasympathetic nervous system, allowing your body to calm, uh, giving you a sense of your body in space, which is called proprioception. So that's actually really good training for your brain for balance and for awareness. Um, certainly building core strength and other things, but they may be just doing that or they're just doing cardio. They're like living on their tread, you know, spin bike or they're running, 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 running. And, they're kind of missing some of the dynamics of the other types of exercise. And so we try to get most people on a balance of um, yoga, tai chi, qigong, things that build proprioception, build core strength, um, and calm the body with cardio, some amount of cardio or hit that's going to really rev up your heart rate, build that cardiovascular health, because that impacts brain health and cognitive function in a really big way long-term and also helps you build muscle, which is really important for insulin and sugar balance. And then weight training, which is also really important for cognitive function and has been really shown to ward off some of the dementias and Alzheimer's that people are getting so frequently later in life, as well as balance blood sugar today, as well as give you more energy. And what I often find is that especially women, they're often skipping the weights Uh, and they like are afraid of bulking up or it just hasn't been something that they've gotten used to doing, or I don't know, just, I, it's, you know, not every woman, but it's more frequent in women. I think it's just sort of culturally impressed upon us. And so, uh, I really try to get people doing some sort of strength and resistance training, some sort of yoga, Tai Chi, Qigong, um, sure. Pilates people, you can throw that in there. And, (laughs) um, (laughs) 
all the Pilates teachers are going to come after me. Um, Pilates is great, but, uh, and then some sort of cardio on a regular basis, um, in order to build peak mental health and to do stuff that, you know, you can do 10, 15, 20 minutes of weight training and be in and out and, and get a great workout. Whereas, you know, for cardio, you have to do it a little bit longer. And I know for t- a lot of people, time is a big sort of barrier to movement. Yeah, I think our sedentary culture is very, very tied to another culprit that you underscore, which is technology, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about our irrational relationship with technology and how that can have some pretty negative knock-on impacts? Yeah. Mobile device addiction is a diagnosed condition. Um, and so it's real. And I think we've essentially been hijacked by our news feeds and our social media platforms. And we're not going to throw our phones out the window. We got to shop, we got to call people, we have to do work, we have to interact. But people go from screen, screen, screen to phone to screen to phone for social, for commerce, for work, for every single thing that they're doing. And These devices have been shown not only to deplete gray matter in your brain and to lead to inattentiveness, but they're also leading to anxiety, depression, and really big self-esteem issues, especially in in women and in younger younger adolescents. And that's all just fact. And so, and then there's an impact on sleep and, and that's really clear. It's not just the blue light, it's the actual stimulation from the content you're consuming that's interrupting your sleep and, and leading you to feel foggy and not rested the next day. And so I'm like not a doom and gloomer. I'm kind of like a, what do you do about this? And so, uh, I really recommend setting some real limits. And so, you know, limit all your apps for max an hour a day. It's really easy to blow through that. Uh, don't look at screens before bed, have an hour before bed, which is your, meditation, your bath, your prepping food for the next day, your like analog hour, uh, and really be mindful of the degree to which these platforms are having impact. One of my patients I write about in the book had a history of anxiety and she was somebody who was what's called a non-responder to medication. So her psychiatrist and I had tried and none of the meds had really helped her. And she had really pretty severe anxiety that was keeping her up at night and interfering with her job, her ability to parent. And she'd gotten into a really good place with it for a while. And then it had kind of reared its ugly head again. And she really wasn't sleeping to a degree that was, you know, frankly dangerous. And so we went through all the things, the movement, the food, you know, that we know the drugs didn't really work. Um, She was developing some dependence on like the Xanaxes of the world. And I kind of did a rescreen of her day. And I realized she was spending like six, seven hours a day on social media and news because this was in pandemic. And so we decided to do like a one week detox. And I was honestly skeptical of my own plan because I was like, this is a little bit of a Hail Mary. Like, is this going to work for her? We got to do something like nothing's working. And she did it. And she ended up sticking with it for a month because she started sleeping again and her anxiety completely dissipated. And so I think we sometimes discount the degree to which these platforms are creating real emotional upheaval in our lives. And so I call attention to that in the book and the science of it. And then what, of course you can do about it. Yeah. I mean, I love that you're always asking the question why you're always moving upstream because the symptoms may appear 
for myriad different reasons. And, uh, I mean, I'm no doctor, but, you know, I can get amygdala hijacked by my social feeds and I have certain insight into what's actually happening um, when I'm having sort of a, a sympathetic overload response to something, some invidious comment on, on social media. And I know that my body, my body is being filled with cortisol and epinephrine. And, you know, those neuromodulators can be useful at times, you know, for alertness and, and focus, um, et cetera. But you certainly don't want them on a chronic basis. And you probably don't want them later in the evening. And, you know, obviously that also ties into, to, you know, blue light and technology because, we have these circadian rhythms um, that are are built in, are wired in, and you know, yeah, we have natural cortisol release in the morning, and then when everything's working, natural melatonin release, you know, in the evening. And when we disrupt that pattern, um, you know, we can really suffer. And I think that bridges uh, somewhat elegantly into sleep and the necessity of sleep and how little sleep our culture actually gets. So can you actually maybe take a little time to uh, unpack what happens when we sleep and why is it important for mood and, and emotional stability? So your nighttime and your sleep and your deep sleep is when your brain takes out the trash from the day. So imagine living in your house and like literally never taking out the trash and your entire living room filled with trash, like you couldn't function in your home. So if you're not sleeping, that's, you know, dramatic, but that's effectively what happens. Your brain actually shrinks at night and washes itself and it takes out the metabolic trash from the day and heals itself. And your uh, brain cells that are responsible for the cleanup crew and the immune system of the brain are active in that nighttime. And so if you're maybe sleeping a certain amount of hours, but you're not getting quality sleep, your room is too hot. It's not dark enough. It's not quiet enough. You're having an agitated sleep because you've been looking at all those news feeds and social platforms up until bedtime or looking at your email. Even if you had the blue light, you know, filter on, it doesn't matter. It's the content, right? Uh, or if you've had alcohol, which disrupts your body's ability to reach a lower resting heart rate and lower body temperature that's required for you to be able to reach those REM cycles that allow your brain to then take out the trash. All of that leads you to feel unrested the next day. And then what happens is, and this is well established, people go, they're looking for energy. Back to our comment about energy, they feel like crap. So they eat, drink too much coffee, they eat sugar to try to keep going. Uh, and that leads to this really horrible rinse and repeat cycle because the sugar and the coffee during the day will keep you up at night. Most people, 60% are a relatively slow caffeine metabolizer. So we all know those people who can have like a coffee right before bed and like hit the, and like go to sleep. My husband's one of those persons, people, it's so infuriating. I don't understand it. I don't have any caffeine after 9am and because I'm a slow metabolizer, and so when you get in that cycle, it can be really disruptive. And then chronic sleep deprivation or chronic poor sleep quality can really mask as depression. And so for a lot of people who are experiencing chronic low-grade depression and anxiety, sleep is one of the number one culprits. And I'm not talking about, of course, something like a bipolar disorder 
um, or schizophrenia disorder that doesn't have its origins certainly in sleep. However, what I will say is that anyone who does have one of those conditions, not addressing sleep and having sleep also be a factor, not addressing movement and having a sedentary lifestyle also be a factor, not addressing food, having the standard American diet that makes you sick also a factor, these things will impair somebody with bipolar, with schizophrenia, with any of this more you know severe psychiatric illnesses, it will basically block you from making some progress, right? It makes everything harder. Um, so sleep is really vital. And uh, I think most people need eight to nine hours, not, you know, not seven to eight is what the research shows. And getting that dark, cool room. I wear earplugs, eye mask, you know, room at 67. I still hear the baby screaming. So, you know, for all the moms who mm-hmm. are listening, I have a six month old, like if he whimpers, he'll just go back to sleep. If he's actually crying, I'll still hear him. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I do that so that I can make the most of the hours I'm getting, even though for me right now, sometimes my nights are interrupted because I have little kids. Yeah. I mean, sleep has always been my Achilles heel. Um, and uh, of course, uh, as I began to learn more about how important it is around cognition, um, both memory co- consolidation, but also learning, it's often where uh, learning codifies um, is during sleep or deep rest. Uh, I really had to take some extra measures to make sure that I was... Uh, I was getting enough sleep and I'm doing better in general, although I'm officiating my brother's wedding on Friday and I've been <laughs> churning over it oh, yeah. um, over the last couple of nights. <laughs> but um, there's a great like, example. So instead of churning, right, because you know you have this big day and you have probably a big toast to give, uh, we're all going to. And I'm sharing this because I get this feedback a lot or people ask about this a lot. It's like, but I have so much going on and there's a war going on and there's a pandemic going on and there's, you know, my brother's wedding going on and there's always, but there's always something. And so one of the things that we need to, to learn, and I don't need to tell you this, I know you know this, but it's like, okay, so how are you processing that information? You have to digest that information like you digest a meal. So if you do have something like that, that's really kind of spinning you out, And I have those things all the time. I mean, startups are nonstop fires. You just wake up to 99 fires. You put out 36 of them and you wake up to 99 more the next day. Uh, That's just life for years now. (laughs) So, okay, I need to then get out of bed or before I go to bed, sit and meditate and like allow my brain and my emotions, allow myself to feel my feelings and allow my brain have a practice like meditation or like breathing that allows my brain to digest that stuff before I go to bed. Cause most people don't myself sometimes included. And then you like slam into bed and you're like, okay, sleep. And that's clearly not working for anybody. Not at all. I mean, uh, obviously there are many practices that have been designed to, um, focus one in the present moment because so much of our, um, emotional stress comes from either taking trauma of the past and projecting it into the future or stewing in in anticipated memory <laughs> so yeah. um yeah. and uh and of course you know when we're 
practicing uh, like a vipassana practice for example which is uh, the practice that i know that that you engaged in for at least 10 days in bangkok um you know we're just seeing phenomena thoughts emotions sensations sounds uh arise and subside in consciousness moment to moment without judging them or assigning them any salience or any valence and you know this is a practice and uh the more you do it um the quote unquote better you get at it and it can really relieve a tremendous amount of suffering day to day and i'm certainly not perfect i try to meditate five or ten minutes a day <laughs> at the minimum um but you know when you uh when you develop this kind of system, again, you fall back on your systems. So if you do have that rough night, you know, where you're wake up and you're roiling over something, then you have a go-to proven practice that you can rely on to provide yourself with some relief uh, and really get the sleep you need for, you know, restoration and all the reasons that, that you described. I mean, there's this whole glymphatic system which, uh, you know, cleans out beta amyloid proteins that are associated with dementia and Alzheimer's, all this kind of stuff that we're learning. So um, I can't stress that enough. Yes. Um, you use the technical term for the washing machine that cleans out your brain, um, which is what I call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, as I get more into this stuff, I, I, I get a little bit more fluent with the terminology and I try to pass that along on this podcast. Uh, I was really I nervous listener... for this podcast because I was like, oh God, he knows more than I do about some of this stuff at this point. I, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I do. Which I deeply appreciate. I'm like, let's bring it up here to, you know, the <laughs> average, um, not quite yet a biohacker, but um, I, I, I love it. Yeah, well, it's just for my own vanity because I, I interview so many brilliant doctors like yourself that uh, I, I can't allow myself to be embarrassed. So I end up reading, you know, three or four books a week on this stuff, and um, I feel I always tell my dad I feel like I'm going to med school as a podcast host. Um, okay, I, I, in uh, respect of time, uh, I'll just um, you know finish with maybe a, just a question or two. Um, I think you know one of the key one of the key things to health and, and taking agency over your own health is actually understanding some of the biomarkers that are most important. And I think one of the things that functional medicine does so well is that it really focuses on diagnostic testing. So if there were four or five key diagnostic tests that you would recommend. Um, so people can get a sense of their holistic health, uh, what would they be? I wrote them down in the book. So if you read, if you buy the book, <laughs> people, you can literally, you know, screenshot the page or rip the page out and take it to your regular doctor. Or of course you can come see us, uh, you know, in the virtually at Parsley cause we're nationwide, but we'll, and we'll do these tests as a matter of course, and a lot more, but we have a reactive healthcare system, not a proactive one. And I see people all the time who are not getting the basics. And so the basics that I cover in the book are looking at blood sugar. So not just hemoglobin A1C, but fasting glucose, fasting insulin, looking at markers of inflammation, chiefly uh, ESR, HSCRP, and in some cases, ANA, which can tell us if you have maybe some autoimmune 
um, beginning or, or going on. Uh, we look at nutrient levels. So vitamin D deficiency can mask as depression. We look at our B vitamin levels. A lot more people are deficient than they realize or not, or are suboptimal, if not truly deficient. Um, we look at thyroid a lot. One in five women will have a thyroid issue in her lifetime and it gets missed all the time because we don't, the standard medical community doesn't do the right tests and doesn't look deeply enough. So we're looking at not just your TSH, which is kind of the number one sort of beginner level marker of thyroid function, but also free T4, free T3, the antibodies to thyroid, which are antithyroglobulin, anti-TPO, because you can have low-grade autoimmune thyroid disease that's impacting thyroid function um, before your TSH actually goes up. Um, and so that gets really missed a lot. And Low thyroid function, by the way, shows up as depression, weight gain, constipation, fatigue, dry skin, number of other symptoms. And so, you know, I can't tell you how many times a woman is told she's depressed when she really has a thyroid disorder. And in those cases, like not all the Zoloft in the world is going to make a difference in her depression. We got to treat the thyroid. So those are a few of the markers that I recommend people look at, looking at some basic heart health markers. Women, especially, heart disease has gotten really underdiagnosed and can be measured early and measured also through markers like, again, HSCRP, homocysteine, as well as some of the uh, cholesterol markers. And so, without sort of rabbit holing too much on testing, the tests I just shared are basic. You can go to any lab core request, any doctor can order them. If your doctor's not ordering them, they should have. If you're 20 years old and you haven't had these tests, you should have. Most kids today have metabolic issues, are starting to have high cholesterol issues and have nutrient level issues. We started a pediatrics program at Parsley because so many of our members wanted us to see their kids. And the same stuff that's happening in the adults is happening in the kids. So these tests are basic. They're usually covered by insurance. They're not expensive. And make sure you're getting them. That's a really big message that I have to anyone listening because I think a lot of people listen to these amazing commune podcasts and <laughs> are really sophisticated in terms of what they're listening to and learning and reading. And I will see those same people not have testing done. And then I think the other important piece of this, and I'll get off my soapbox on testing, but it's like, it's not enough to get tested once. You got to then change some stuff and get tested again. And some of the direct-to-consumers like at-home tests are okay. But a lot of them are not, you know, as accurate. They can be for certain markers. But like a fasting glucose isn't going to work on an at-home test. So you really need then also to hopefully see a provider who's not just giving you a number back, but who's telling you what the number means and what to do about it. Awesome. Well, Robin, there are so many other questions that I'd love to ask you, but we'll uh, cubbyhole them for... Part two, if I can tempt you back, um, I want to talk about fasting. I want to talk about uh, supplementation in some greater detail. I mean, it's interesting because I went plant-based about eight months ago. And so when I was reading the book, I had a lot of questions about you know, where I might be deficient. Um, and of course, you know, this comes up in testing too, but um, just things around vitamin B and the diaspora of, of B vitamins. Um, that are important, and then really omega threes, because um, uh, that's an area where you can get it through to some degree through a plant based diet, but 
it doesn't really convert um, at very high levels. At least that's what I read <laughs> in your book. Yes. Um, so I'm, I've got to find I'm ways. <laughs> yeah. Eat real fish oil. Don't do the plant-based omega-3s if you're open to it because it makes a really big difference, especially if you're pregnant or getting pregnant. Please, please, please. Okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'm in and I'm doing it. And to be quite uh, yeah, transparent that I, I will eat fish, you know, once or twice a week because I just think it's important and um, for me. Um, but I think this is the the amazing um, frontier that we're on. I mean, you can call it personalized medicine, but I think, you know, what you're bringing to the world, obviously with this book, State Change, which everyone should read, and with Parsley Health, um, which everyone should check out, is really giving people more agency uh, over their own health and really helping them along that quest and really asking a lot of questions. Um, uh, your, your intake form is not the normal intake form. Um, it's a, it's an exercise in self inquiry, actually. <laughs> um, it's spiritual almost. And, um, and, uh, I think it's just, uh, incredible what you're doing. Um, I take sort of a, a lot of pride from the sidelines watching your success and and everything that you, you're you've accomplished and you continue to accomplish so i really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast from austin texas well thank you for having me it's been amazing to watch you and skylar build so many incredible platforms in health and wellness starting with kula which as i share in the book changed my life i'm still trying to get out to LA for a retreat with you all at some point somewhere. Um, but really thrilled to be on the podcast and thanks for having me for everyone out there. It's just find us at Parsley Health. We have an amazing newsletter with a lot of this kinds of information that's all physician authored, edited, health coach authored, edited. And um, you can find me at Robin Burson MD and Parsley at Parsley Health. And if you want to get your symptom score and kind of get a whole body health score, check out parsleyhealth.com slash insights. And uh, it's a place where you can kind of get, do some of what I share in the book online in terms of that it's the beginning of the self-inquiry. But thank you for having me. Thank you, Robin. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dr. Robin Burzen. Keep up with Robin at robinburzenmd.com and visit Parsley Health at parsleyhealth.com. And be sure to pick up Robin's new book, State Change. And if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. Make my mom proud. And if you're a regular listener, you know how much effort that we put into this show's creation week after week. And we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where I prattle on for the first 15 minutes about ads or brands. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commute. You'll access more than a hundred courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for free for 14 days at onecommune.com slash trial. And of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime I read every email. Just drop me a note at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, 
including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Ruby Foster, Emma Fretz, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you. <laughs>